genealogy of Matthew. It's a very interesting genealogy. Most people don't like to read genealogies because they seem to be belabored and confusing. But Matthew chapter 1. Last week we did an introduction. Now we're going to look at the genealogy. We're going to cover verses 1 through 17. And just let me remind you, in Israel, uh, genealogies serve a certain purpose. For example, if you wanted to serve as a priest in the temple, you had to trace your lineage back to Levi. You had to have a genealogy where you could trace your lineage back to Levi, who was the first priest uh, under Aaron. And so genealogies uh, served a purpose. Now here's the thing about genealogies. Genealogies were never to be studied in great detail. Uh, you would present your genealogy, someone would read it, they would stamp it and say, you're qualified to be a priest. Like any other document. And so... Uh, it was read in one sitting, it was examined to determine whether it supported the claims of the person who wanted to be a priest or whatever office they wanted to hold. So what we're going to do is we're going to examine the genealogy in that way. You'll see that this genealogy is no different. And so what we're going to do is we're going to read the genealogy, and when we read the genealogy in one setting, I'm going to point out a few things to you, okay? A few things of interest. So this let me look at verse 1. Here's what it says. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> uh, the word Christ is his title. It means the genealogy of Jesus Messiah. The son of David. The son of Abraham. Now we could call verse 1 the title. Or the, the uh, I would call it the title of verses 1 through 17. It's the title of this little section. And the title of this section would be the book of genealogy of Jesus Messiah, son of David, son of Abraham. So what it's going to show is that Jesus holds the office of Messiah. And this is going to trace his genealogy back through David and through Abraham, saying that Jesus has a legitimate right to hold the office of Messiah. If you look down at verse 17, for example, it says, So the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations and David to the captivity in the Babylon of 14 generations, and from the captivity in Babylon unto Messiah, unto Christ, are 14 generations. Now notice that the genealogy opens with Jesus Christ, Messiah. You see that? Verse 1 opens with Messiah. Notice the genealogy closes with Messiah, which is Christ. Okay? And this genealogy, in a sense, shows that Jesus qualifies through his lineage to be the Messiah. The word Messiah was understood by Jews in Jesus' day to refer to God's messenger who came in God's power to set up the kingdom of God on earth. So that's how you need to understand the Jewish concept of the Messiah. Verse 1 is a complete sentence, in a sense. The genealogy of Jesus Christ, Messiah, son of David, son of Abraham, and then verse 17 in the sense is a complete sentence. It says Jesus is the Messiah. Everything in between are just names. Okay? So the first sentence makes a statement, Jesus is the Messiah, through Abraham and David, and then verse 17 makes basically the same claim. Everything else in between are names. 
Okay? Jesus' lineage. Now, I want you to notice something in verse 1. Notice that David's name comes first in the lineage. Jesus, the son of David, the son of Abraham. David comes first and then Abraham comes next. Now, why does David come first? Abraham lived 800 years before David. You think Abraham would come first? But he puts David first. Why do you think he puts David first rather than Abraham first? It should be the other way around, shouldn't it? At least that's what you would think logically. It's because David is the pivotal person in this genealogy. Let me say that again. David is the pivotal person in this genealogy. Verses 1 through 6. Here's how we're going to divide this thing. Watch this. Verses 1 through 6 speaks of the origin of David's royal dynasty. So it starts off, Abraham begot Isaac, and it comes all the way down to the end of verse 6, David the king. Verses 1 through 6 establish the origin of David's dynasty. Abraham's family becomes part of royalty through David. Abraham's not royalty. Abraham's just the person. But his family line become royalty through David. Okay, so verses 1 through 6, the origin of David's royal dynasty. Now watch this. Verses 7 through 11, the decline of David's royal dynasty. If you look down at verse 11, it says the Jews were carried away into Babylon and the royal kingship now ends. The Jews are in exile. So you have the origin of David's dynasty, the decline of David's dynasty. Then, in verses 12 through 16, you have the revival of David's dynasty. And you look at verse 16, was born Jesus, who is called Messiah. And in the Messiah, Jesus becomes David's successor as king over Israel. He becomes the king of the Jews. And that's what Matthew is all about. Remember the wise men in Matthew come to Herod and say, where is he who is born what? King of the Jews. So David's royal dynasty is regained. Okay? So you have his origin, the decline, and the revival of David's dynasty. The pivotal point person in the lineage is David. That's why David's name is mentioned first. In the lineage, he's the most important person. Does that make sense? So, verses 1 through 6, we see David's power is attained. In verses 7 through 11, David's power is lost. And in verses 12 through 16, we see the power is regained through Christ. Now, notice how this whole section ends. Look at verse 17. So the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David to the captivity in Babylon, in other words, when the king ceased to exist, 14 generations. From the captivity in Babylon until Christ, Messiah, 
14 generations. So, I assume that if we would read verses 2 through 17, we would discover that in each section, section 1, there's 14 generations, section 2, there's 14 generations, and section 3, there's 14 generations. So let's read the genealogy as it stands. So let's look what it says. Starts off in verse 2. And I want you to count the names. First generation, Abraham, verse 2. Do you see that? Abraham begot Isaac. That's two. Just count those names. Isaac begot Jacob. That's three. Jacob begot Judah and his brothers. That's fourth generation. Judah begot Perez. Fifth generation. Zerah and begot uh, begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Okay. Perez begot Hezron. How many is that? Six? Seven? Six? Six. It's the next generation. Okay. Hezron begot Ram. You count them for me. Ram begot Abinadab. Abinadab begot Nashon. How many is that? Nashon begot Salmon. Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab. That's 11. Boaz begot Obed. 12 by Ruth. Obed begot Jesse. That's what? 13. And Jesse begot David the king. That's 14. So we have 14 generations in section 1. Now look at the next section. It ends with David. Now David begot Solomon. That's the next one. Solomon begot Rehoboam. That's 2. Rehoboam begot Abijah. That's 3. Abijah begot Asa. That's 4. Asa begot Jehoshaphat. That's 5. Jehoshaphat begot Joram. That's 6. Joram begot Uzziah, that's seven. Uzziah begot Jotham, that's eight. Jotham begot Ahaz, that's nine. Ahaz begot Hezekiah, that's ten. Hezekiah begot Manasseh, that's eleven. Manasseh begot Ammon, that's twelve. Ammon begot Josiah, that's thirteen. Josiah begot Jeconiah and his brothers. Is that right? Fourteen? Okay. Until they were carried away in Babylon. Now the next one. And after these were brought, am I okay or did I skip somebody? Am I right? Okay. okay. <clears throat> and after they were brought to Babylon, Jeconiah, and he already has been mentioned, so his generation has been mentioned, we got uh, Sheatiel, that's one. Sheatiel begot Zerubbabel, that's two. Zerubbabel begot Abiud, that's three. Abiud begot uh, Elakim, that's four. Elohim begot Azar, that's five. Azar begot Zadok, that's six. Zadok begot Akim, that's seven. Akim begot Elihu, that's eight. Elihu begot Eleazar, that's nine. Eleazar begot Mathen, that's ten. Mathen begot Jacob, that's eleven. Jacob begot Joseph, that's twelve, the mother of Mary, who was born Jesus, that's thirteen. That's 13. Now, verse 17 says, and so all the generations are 14, 14, and 14. 
Doesn't seem like 14, 14, and 14 to me, does it? So now we have to ask ourselves a question. What's going on here? Can't Matthew count? Is he stupid? No, I don't think somebody wrote a book like this is stupid. And if this happens to be Matthew the tax collector, I know he can count. <coughs> so what's going on? So well, we have to come up with some sort of solution, if there is any. Some say, well, you're supposed to count double on some names. You know, that's a possible solution. Uh, some who are more liberal say, well, that's a mistake. There's an obvious mistake in the Bible, which we don't accept. So, obviously, Matthew isn't stupid, and he, he can count. So he's doing something. And it's our job to try to figure out what in the world is Matthew doing here. Now, let me just point out a couple things that are really obvious. If you know, know anything about biblical history. In section 1, verses 1 through 6, or 2 through 6, which covers from Abraham to the crowning of David, Section 1 takes place over 800 years. Just write that down. 800 years. Okay. Section 2, from David to the Babylonian captivity, takes place over 400 years. So, what's the difference there? Ah, 400 years. The first section, 800 years. The second section, 400 years. The third section... 575 years. Now, how many generations? Obviously, in this first section, if you have 800 years, in the second section, you have 400 years. In the first section, you'd have twice as many generations living, wouldn't you? At least you'd have more than people who lived only 400 years. Matthew knows that. He's not stupid. So he's not trying to be absolutely accurate and give you, say, well, actually, in that 800 years there were only 14 generations. No, there weren't. There were, there were a lot of generations that aren't even mentioned here. He knows he's skipping generations. He's not trying to be precise in listing every single person who lived in Jesus' genealogy over you know, a 2,000-year period of time. He omits generations. Just let me say this. Matthew's not concerned about math. Okay? Matthew's concerned about making a theological statement. He's not concerned about being precise here. He wants to make a theological statement, and he's making that statement in code. In code. He is using a Jewish code system known as gematria. Gematria is when you attribute a value to a letter. Remember, we saw this in Revelation 666. Remember how that was done? Well, the Hebrews also had a coding system. Each letter in the Hebrew alphabet had a value placed on it, a numerical value placed on it. We don't have that in America. We don't have that in English. We don't say A equals 1, do we? And Z equals 26? We don't, we don't think that way. But the Jews did. Now watch this. David is the central figure in this genealogy. David's name has a value. <coughs> Hebrews didn't have vowels. Did you know that? We have A-E-I-O-U and sometimes Y. In our alphabet. The Jews do not have vowels. No vowels in the Jewish alphabet. All they have is consonants. 
So, here is the value. The Hebrew letter Daleth, which is our D, is the fourth letter in the Hebrew alphabet. So, D represents four. Okay? The next letter in David's name is V. V, because there's no consonant. I mean, there's no vowel. The V is the sixth letter in David's name. That's the vowel. Okay? So you have D. How much is that? Four. V. That adds up to what? Ten. Last letter, D. Fourteen. He's saying each... All he's saying is each part of the genealogy points to David. And the people who read that would understand that. It was just a coded way of saying things. It's a strange thing, but that's what he's doing. He's saying all this is about David's genealogy. David gains power, David loses power, and David's dynasty is restored in the person of Jesus, who is the Messiah. So that's about the best we can do with that. Now, another thing I want to point out in the genealogy, something very interesting, is that you'll notice that in verse... Three, there's a woman's name. It says, Judah begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar. A woman's name, Tamar. And then in verse 5, you see a woman's name. Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab. That's a woman's name. Then in verse 6, David, the king, begot Solomon by her whose wife was the wife of Uriah, that's Bathsheba. This illicit relationship produced Solomon through Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. And then, as you go down, is there another one? So we had Tamar, we had... Where's Ruth? Oh, Ruth is back in verse, into verse 5. Right. Boaz begot Obed by Ruth. So there's four women. And then down in verse 16, And Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus. So notice there are five women in this genealogy. That's unusual. We know from studying Jewish genealogies that women were not listed. The most famous genealogy is that of Josephus, uh, the Jewish historian who lived during the Roman Empire and saw the destruction of Israel in 70 AD. AD. He was an eyewitness to it. He was a general, and, uh, but also a historian. He lists his genealogy. He doesn't have one woman in his genealogy, and that's a typical way of doing genealogy. So it's unusual to have a woman in the genealogy. Rarely was there a woman in the genealogy. Here we have five women, and not just any women. Not just anyone. These are Gentile women. Four of the first four are foreign women. Women, okay. Now you would think that if you wanted to put a woman in the genealogy of Jesus, you would put in Sarah. People of respect: Rebecca, Rachel, you know, Hannah, people like that, Esther. But instead, Matthew, when he writes out the genealogy of Jesus, he includes foreign women. Two of them are Canaanites. Think about what a Canaanite was. When Israel escaped Egypt, and they were going to 
the promised land. That was the that was Canaan's land. That was where Canaan, the Canaanites lived. They were to destroy the idols of the Canaanites. Two of the women are Canaanites. One of the women is a Moabite. Terrible enemies of Israel. And one's a Hittite. They were all ites. You know, if you see anything with ite on the end of the name, it's religious, you know you're in trouble. So here are these women. Now, so number one, they were foreign women who were enemies of Israel and all idolaters. Okay. Second of all, they married or had relationships with Jewish men which were scandalous. And often had illegitimate offspring who are mentioned right here in the genealogy. And if they weren't illegitimate, they were certainly looked down upon. So these are women on the margins. Marginal people in this genealogy. Leading up to David, David himself has a relationship with one of these women and goes all the way up to the Messiahs. Now when you look at the women, the first woman you see is Tamar in verse 3. Tamar was a Canaanite who was married to a guy named Ur. E-R. When the rabbi said, you take this man to be your wedded husband, she said, Ur, uh, Ur. <laughs> so anyway, here's what happened. <clears throat> Ur dies on her. He's married and he dies on her. He shouldn't have been married to this woman. She's a Canaanite. He marries a Canaanite. And he dies on this woman. Now, she, of course, has to, she comes on and takes on his religion. And according to Jewish practice, that when a husband died without kids, his brother was to impregnate his wife so he would have a seed after him, a son after him. And Onan is his brother, and he refuses to do it. He says, ah, I'm going to do it. And then he just sort of backs down, and he doesn't do it. He doesn't fulfill the law that his dead brother will have a son. It's called the leveret practice, or the leveret tradition, according to the law in Deuteronomy. So, uh, Judah, the father-in-law, has a third son, and he, that son should take her as his wife and produce a son for his dead brother. And Judah, the father, says, look, no more of my kids are going to have you as a wife. That's it. So what she does is she disguises herself. And she dresses up like a prostitute and she stands out on the corner and lifts her skirt. And Judah walks by and he goes, whoa! And she seduces her father-in-law. Which produces an illegitimate offspring. And that's what you have there in verse 3. They have twins. You see that in verse 3. <clears throat> so this is a relationship with her father-in-law. And then after it's all over, she reveals herself. And the father-in-law says, I've sinned greatly. I should have given my other son to you according to the Jewish law and tradition. I didn't do it. She is in this genealogy. Now the second person in the genealogy is Rahab in verse 5. And you know who Rahab is. She was the prostitute on the wall 
of Jericho when the Jewish spies came in to decide that if what they needed to do to take over the city. And she hid the Jewish spies. Remember that? And they allowed her and her family to live. And she ends up marrying, or I don't know if it was a marriage or not. The scripture never says it's a marriage. But she ends up, where is she? In verse 5, begets Boaz. So Boaz's mother is Rahab the harlot. You've heard of Boaz, haven't you? Yeah, what do we know about Boaz? Well, next we see that Boaz begot Obed by Ruth. That's the third woman. Ruth was a Moabite, an idolater. Remember, she got married and her husband drops dead. <clears throat> and her brother-in-law drops dead. <laughs> so, I mean, there's, the whole family's dying. And the father-in-law drops dead. There's no more men in the family. And so Naomi says, well, just come with me. And they go back to Bethlehem. And she sees Boaz. Who's Boaz? Rahab's son. And it says, she looked at him and he looked at her and they went, wow. He falls asleep on the threshing floor and she crawls under the covers with him, the scripture says. We want to make that legitimate for somehow Christian eyes. Christians sort of try to clean that story up. But it may not be as clean as you think it is. And so they end up having a child and it says that child was who? Obed. Is that right? Obed. Obed has Jesse and then Jesse has David. So that's how King David comes into power. And then the fourth woman on the scene is Bathsheba because King David looks out his window and sees this gal sunbathing. She's married to one of the generals in his army and he has a relationship with her. And he's afraid her husband's going to find out, puts him out in the front, puts him on the front lines, he gets killed. And they have a baby and that baby dies and then they have another baby. King David and Bathsheba have another baby who becomes King Solomon. So you have these illicit relationships and illegitimate children. Why is that? Why are they in this genealogy? What respectable person would put those kinds of people in a genealogy? You do, they're, people, they're, the, they're the skeletons in the closet that you want hidden. Hey, we have a candidate who's just withdrawn from the race for president who's had illegitimate relationships, at least that's, he's been accused of that, he didn't, why in the world would he run for president knowing that these stories would come out? He didn't want these stories out. In fact, he denied every one of them, didn't he? So he's, and he'll deny them until his dying day, I guess. I, haven't, I didn't hear, did he admit anything? I didn't hear that announcement. Matthew admits it all. He says, our president, yeah, his grandfather was illegitimate, had an illegitimate kid, you know. So it's all here. So why, why are these people in the genealogy? And I think there are a couple of reasons, and I think it gets very interesting at this point. Number one, it shows you that no matter what messes you make of your life, God providentially can turn that around and use it for his glory. He can produce a king. Uh, of Israel, a man after his own heart. And I think that's one of the reasons. 
But I think those four women are placed in this genealogy because of Mary, Jesus' mother. Because look at verse 17. Look what it says. We'll just look at the end of verse 17. Or verse 16, rather. Verse 16. Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Now look at the pronoun whom. Do you see that? That's a feminine pronoun. Okay? And it's a passive verb. Of whom was born Jesus. It doesn't say Joseph begot Jesus, does it, like all the others? It doesn't say Joseph begot Jesus through Mary. No, Jesus was born of Mary. Joseph had absolutely nothing to do with it. Joseph was not Jesus' father. From a human perspective, now listen carefully, from a human perspective, Mary's Pregnancy was scandalous. From a human perspective, Jesus was illegitimate. Now, if you look at verse 19, we see that Jen Joseph, it says Mary was found with child, verse 19, then Joseph, her husband, being a just man, a fair man, not wanting to make her a public example. was minded to put her away secretly. He's going to divorce her in a private divorce ceremony because she's pregnant and he's not the father. She says, Joseph, I'm pregnant. And he says, pregnant? We didn't have any relation. How do you get pregnant? Holy Ghost. <laughs> and he said... Holy Ghost. <laughs> and he says, you know, I should take you out and stone you, but guess what? I, do? I love you. I'm going to divorce you. And uh, he writes out a letter of divorcement. And when he does that, you know the next verse says he has a dream and the angel comes and says, hey, this is from God. Now, Joseph knows it's from God. He knows the truth. But how about the neighbors? Do they believe that Mary's been impregnated by the Holy Ghost? How about if one of Joseph's neighbors said, Joseph, I see Mary's pregnant. You're, you're just in this espousal stage. What's happened here? He's a Holy Ghost. They're going to think, this is ridiculous. This stigma remains on Jesus' life forever. Now let me just show you one verse. Turn over to John chapter 8. Joseph knows the truth, but the neighbors don't. Okay? Now here Jesus, in chapter 8 of John's Gospel, is having a confrontation with the Pharisees. And you know, he basically, they said, well, we're Abraham's children. And Jesus said, no, you're children of the devil. You know, all that stuff. You're familiar with that passage. And they get mad at him, and look what they say in chapter 8 of John's Gospel, in verse 41. Then they said to him, 
We weren't born of fornication. You see that? What's the implication? You were. We weren't born of fornication. We have one Father, and that is God. So, let me tell you, all the way through his childhood, all the way through his teenage years, all the way through his adulthood, into his ministry, he is labeled as an illegitimate child. And God says, well, guess what? Doesn't matter what the neighbors think. Let me tell you about some women who had illegitimate children. And guess what? They are right there in the line of King David and right in the line of Jesus the Messiah. And even if you think Jesus is illegitimate, and guess what? I would say that probably most of the people thought he was illegitimate in his day. Except these apostles, maybe. But guess what? They were getting one, weren't they? Didn't didn't many of them come to him and believe that he was the Messiah? Didn't they put their faith in him? And God is basically saying, look, just because Mary is a marginal figure, just because you think Jesus is a marginal figure, that does not disqualify him for being Messiah. King David had illegitimate people in his family. In fact, they actually produced an illegitimate child, but he was still king. He was the greatest person in the world. He had a heart for God. And no matter what you think of Jesus, that does not disqualify him for being your Messiah. You need to put all that aside and trust him as your Messiah. And so what he's doing, he's showing, just remember what I said last week. Matthew is writing in around 80 AD. He's writing about events that happened around 30 AD. His audience are Christians and churches who are marginal. Some are Gentiles. Some are prostitutes and tax collectors and these kinds of people. What kind of people are they? The same kind of people that were in Jesus' genealogy. And these people in 80 AD, guess what? Their neighbors have labeled them as marginal people. Well, guess what? These people were labeled as marginal people in this genealogy, including Mary and Jesus himself. Doesn't matter how people label you. Did God accept these people? Yes. Did God forgive these people? And guess what he's saying? And God will forgive you too. Don't worry whether other people think you're marginal. Hey, God is your Father. Jesus is your Messiah. Jesus is with you. Don't worry about it. So he's, in a sense, trying to comfort the audience that, yes, you're being ostracized. Guess what? Everybody in Jesus' genealogy, to one degree or another, at least many in Jesus' genealogy, were being ostracized as well. So, what kind of people did Jesus reach out to? He reached out to marginal people. What kind of people is Sandy reaching out to? Marginal people. These are the people that we should be reaching out to. And these are the people that God accepts. When everybody else rejects them as marginal, God accepts them as his children. So, this message, I think, this genealogy would minister to Matthew's audience as well. Remember this. The genealogy in verse 2 starts off with Abraham begot Isaac. Abraham himself was a Gentile. 
Abraham wasn't a Jew. He was an idolatrous Gentile. Until God claimed him as his own. And said, come, you're my child. And it'll be through you, you Gentile, Abraham, that I'm claiming you as my own. It'll be through you and your seed that I will reach and bless other Gentile nations and Gentile people. So, God's mission includes Gentiles. It includes marginal people. Abraham stood at the beginning of Israel's hope. In verse 2, Abraham's the first one who begot Isaac. Jesus, in in verse 16, fulfills Israel's hope. Notice the lineage of the Messiah starts with Abraham and Isaac in verse 2. I mean Abraham and Sarah in verse 2. Abraham's an old man, Sarah's an old woman, they can't have children. The lineage starts between Abraham and Sarah, and the lineage starts with a supernatural birth. And the lineage ends in verse 16 with Jesus, and it ends with a supernatural birth. A woman impregnated by the Holy Spirit. And so when you see this, and you look at this genealogy, it has so much in here. And so we need to understand that genealogy to understand the rest of the book. And the rest of the book is going to be how how Jesus ministers to people on the margins. Next week we'll look at the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. We'll finish up this chapter. And it's very interesting when you get to the the wise men, which we'll do in two weeks. Who are the wise men? Men from the east. What's that mean? New York? East of the Roman Empire. People that were considered beyond the borders of the Roman Empire. You talk about rejects. They weren't even part of the Roman Empire. They were part of Rome's enemy. But guess what? They come and they seek him who is king of the Jews. We'll see how all that works out next week. Lord, we thank you for this section. We see how a genealogy can be important, how it can reveal so much. We can see why it's put at the front of this book. Not only establishing lineage, but showing skeletons, uh, but not shamefully, uh, as examples of your tremendous grace and forgiveness. And Lord, many of us in this room have skeletons. We have things that, we, that we're hiding. Sins that we're hiding. Affairs that were committed discretions that were made. And Lord, may you minister to each person in this room. Minister your grace, even this moment, and your forgiveness. And let each person know deep in their heart their guilt is gone, their sins are washed away. And you accept them totally and unconditionally. By your grace, you give us compassion. Because you're a God who created us and loved us and redeemed us. So, Lord, help us to realize that no matter how far a person falls, no matter how far out on the margins they are, they can be accepted by you in Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.